Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 is where we left off last week in our study of God's Word. Well, Revelation 4 and 5 gives us a glimpse into the heavenly throne room of God. We spent a week in Revelation 4, and then we had a sermon of application, an apologetic for the throne of God and His demand for worship, because we live in a time where many people would be suspicious of anyone who sits on a throne and suspicious of anyone who demands worship. And so, It was good to spend some time looking at God's right to the throne and God's right to worship and why it's good for him to demand the obedience and the worship of all his creation. Then last week we moved into Revelation chapter 5. And in Revelation 5, the Lamb, Jesus Christ, comes to receive a scroll which is going to grab our attention for the remainder of the book of Revelation, and it's very significant. And as the Lamb receives this mysterious and very interesting scroll, there is praise that is given to the Lamb in Revelation chapter 5, and I'd like to read with you once again verses 12 and 13 that records that praise. The numberless angels around the throne say with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Notice in the sevenfold blessing that is in verse 12, There's a mention of power and might. Those are different words in the original and translated here as power and might. And then in the second blessing, the second element of praise there, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, in the following verse, once again you have the word might appearing there. Blessing, honor, glory, and might forever and ever. And that's also a different word in the original, but translated with the same word might that is found in verse 12. So three of the words here that are bringing honor and glory to God focus on the power, the might, the strength that is due to him. And when we were getting into Revelation 4 and the apologetic for God's throne, we focused a lot on how God is able and worthy to demand worship God's right to worship, but we didn't spend as much time on God's right to rule and the power that is due to him. I wanted to follow up on Revelation 4 and 5, focusing on that, God's right to power, God's right to might, God's right to rule, and that's going to be our apologetic focus this morning as we do an overall study of the Bible and the subject of power and might, really in particular the use and abuse of power. That phrase, the abuse of power, is one that has become very common in our culture. We've become a culture that is obsessed with power and the structures of power and the abuse of power that is often called oppression. And so we we have all these different focuses on all the different people groups 
who are oppressed and the people groups who are oppressing them. And there's a lot of wrong ideas, a lot of unbiblical ideas about the use and abuse of power that are circulating. And it's good to shine a light on those. And that's what I wanted to do this morning in following up on our apologetic for God's throne. And we remember that When God demands worship, he's not focused on himself in a way that he's excluding others. He's not a megalomaniac because he really is great and he's not delusional about his greatness. And he's not selfish because, as we see laid out here before us on the communion table, the God who is the creator, the one who is worthy of all worship, is the one who humbled himself in order to serve us by dying in our place on the cross. And so, As we think about God's demand for worship, we remember that he is not a megalomaniac, he is not egocentric, he is not selfish, but that this is what is right for God the creator, even though it is wrong for a created person like Belteshazzar from our scripture reading to demand this kind of worship or to try to take the place of God. Revelation 4.11 also spoke of the power of God and the praise of God there in the previous chapter. And so power and might, that's God's right to rule. That's what we're going to focus on here this morning. And a follow-up on Revelation 4 and 5 concerning God's throne and God's worship, focusing in on this element, the use and abuse of power throughout all of Scripture. It's a fascinating study for me. I really enjoyed getting into everything in particular that the Old Testament has to say on this subject of the abuse of power. Now, before we dive into the text itself, it's good for us to define this term here, the term abuse. Not a term that is used a lot in Bible translations, particularly the ones that I'm used to using. Perhaps some of the newer translations have started to use this word more. But Abuse in the English language means a corrupt practice or custom. Now, does the Bible talk about corrupt practices and customs? Well, of course. The Bible talks a lot about corruption among people in all levels of society. Another use of the word abuse is particularly in regards to language, that language that condemns or vilifies unjustly, intemperately, or angrily. And does the Bible have a lot to say about language that condemns or vilifies unjustly or angrily? Oh yeah, there's a lot of teaching on that in the Bible. So the Bible does teach on the subject of abuse, even if translators have not used that word to talk about it. And then there's also the physical abuse, physical mistreatment. And so we'll get into some of that as well. So we're going to be talking about the use and abuse of power, looking at what the Scripture has to teach starting all the way back in the book of Genesis and working our way through Revelation. And the first principle that I want you to understand from the Scripture concerning the abuse of power is that you should expect extensive abuse of power among sinful humanity. God has given everyone power. You have the power of language. The most powerful muscle in your body is your tongue. Because the tongue is what directs the course of your whole life, according to Scripture. And the power that we have in our tongue is actually the power of life and death, according to the wisdom of Solomon. And so the power that God has given you in the words that come out of your mouth, it's a tremendous power compared to all the other creatures that are in the world. It's a superpower. None of the other creatures in the world have the power of language that human beings possess. And people abuse that power. Just like they abuse every power that God gives them, they are full of corruption, corrupt ways, as the Webster's Dictionary defines the word abuse. So when we live in a sinful world, 
you can expect extensive abuse of power. What does the Scripture say on that? Why is this a biblical principle? Well, many, many verses, but I like this one here in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. See? Oppression and power. This is the English Standard Version translation. And in the ESV translation, the word oppression is translated 125 times in the ESV Bible. So the Bible talks a lot about oppression as it's translated in the English language. 114 of those 125 uses of the word oppression are in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament has a lot of teaching on oppression. The words that are used in the original Hebrew of the Old Testament to be translated into oppression are various in their meanings. Two of them focus on this idea of squeezing and pressing together. And that is what oppression is. You see it in our English word, this pressing together, using power to force somebody to do something And that is inherent in the Hebrew word that is translated into English as oppress. Well, two of them. Two of the other ones focus on mistreatment or wrong or extortion. And so both those ideas, the idea of squeezing and the idea of mistreating and wronging, are key in these Old Testament words that are translated as oppression. Notice here that on the side of their oppressors there was power and there was no one to comfort them. This lamentable state of the world where there's all of these oppressions that are done under the sun. And there's the tears of the oppressed and there seems to be no one to comfort them. Very sad state of affairs. It's reiterated here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 8 and where Solomon says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. So here's the command of Scripture. Expect oppression. Do not be amazed when you see injustice and misuse and abuse of power. What does he say? For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. That the watchmen have to have watchmen watching them, and those watchmen have to have watchmen watching them. And who's, who's the highest one? Who's the one who is watching over the highest of the watchmen? Well, we'll get to that. As we go further into the prophets of the Old Testament, Ezekiel in his time, looking at the princes of Israel, said that everyone, according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. So when I say expect extensive, this is the kind of extensive that you look for in the abuse of power. Everyone, according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. Oppression has to do with fraud, lies, deceit, and also forceful seizure of other people's properties and other people's rights. And shedding of innocent blood is a key theme in the Old Testament. 23 times it's mentioned in the Bible, the shedding of innocent blood. 19 times of those are in the Old Testament. So again, the Old Testament has a lot to say about oppression and how it is extensive and universal among mankind. Jeremiah, I don't have the verse here for you, but Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 6 says, Of the city of Jerusalem, there is nothing but oppression within her. This is the city of Jerusalem. This isn't some pagan city. This is the city of David, the city where the temple is, the city where the law is, the city where the people have received the revelation of Moses. There is nothing but oppression within her, is what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 6.6. 6. 
And then in Jeremiah 22:17, he goes on and says, but you, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. So, Hopefully, these examples are enough to show you the biblical principle that you should expect extensive abuse of power among sinful humanity. Now, when we talk about abuse of power, there's different levels of power in society. You've got usually the highest level of human power, and that is the governmental power, the national power. And you see this kind of abuse of power in the Old Testament My favorite example of it, or my least favorite example, you might say, is Jezebel and Naboth, how she falsely accused him of blasphemy, had him stoned to death so that she could seize his property for the use of the king. That kind of misuse of the courts, that kind of misuse of power, that corruption, that oppression was existing then, and it is existing now, and you should expect to see that in the governmental structures. They are going to abuse their power because they are sinners. Secondly, you see abuse of commercial power. This would be the the big businesses, the big corporations in our world today. Nothing has changed. They are corrupt just the way that people were corrupt in the ancient world. In Psalm chapters 55, verse 11, David, speaking of, again, the people of Israel, said, Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. The marketplace is filled with fraud. It's filled with abuse of power. And that's what we expect from sinful people. They're going to abuse their power on the governmental level, and the economic level, and also in religion. You can expect abuse of authority in the church or the synagogue or the mosque. Sinners are going to be corrupt. They're going to act corruptly. Don't be surprised when you see it happen. In fact, you should be surprised when you don't see it happen, and that's a good surprise. We do appreciate that there is some grace in the world. We'll get to that. And then finally, the domestic abuse. Spouse abuse, child abuse. This is something that you see also addressed within the Scriptures. And I'd like to give an example of that from the book of Genesis Genesis 16.6, we won't go back and look at the whole story, it's a messed up situation to begin with, but Sarai is jealous and upset at her servant, Hagar, who has borne a child to Abram because Sarai was barren, and so Sarai's complaining about the arrogance of Hagar, and Abram, he just doesn't want to deal with it, so he tells Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power, do to her as you please. And so what did Sarai do? She dealt harshly with Hagar, and Hagar had to flee from the household of Abraham. And so you see here an abuse of power by the woman who was in charge of the household over her servant. This is domestic abuse. Abuse is not confined to one ethnicity. It's not confined to one sex. It is endemic to all of human nature. All races, all cultures, all genders, both of them, will engage in abuse of power, this kind of oppression, according to the power that God has given us. You don't have to be president of the United States to be corrupt in your use of power. You have a tongue in your mouth. You can use your tongue and abuse the power that God has given you with false accusations. There's many ways that we abuse one another. Now, When doing marriage counseling, one of the things that's always wise to talk about the married couple-to-be is that you have to realize that you are marrying a sinner. 
And what can you expect from a sinner? Well, that they are going to be corrupt in their ways. They are going to abuse the power that God has given to them. And so, has Jamie been abused by me? Yes. Have I been abused by Jamie? Yes. This idea that we get from our culture that there's the abuser and there's the victim, and and you're either in one category or the other category, is totally unbiblical. All people are sinners, and therefore all people are abusers. Some are worse sinners than others. Some are more abusers than others. Some are less victims than others. More are, some are more victims than others. But we're all victims, and we're all abusers. That is the, the biblical teaching from Scripture. So expect abuse, but that doesn't make abuse right. And so that brings us to our second point here in the use and abuse of power, is that the fear of God is a strong deterrent. Who watches the watchman? If those who are in charge have no fear of God, well then they are willing to use their power knowing that there's no one else that is going to hold them accountable, that is going to punish them for their abuse of power. But if there is a God, and that fear of God says, God put me in this position and I have to give an account to God, then that is the most potent deterrent to the abuse of power and oppression. I'll give you some examples again. Where this is all coming from my study of Scripture. I didn't come up with these points from reading somebody's book or just sitting in my office pondering. But I was reading Scripture and I came across Genesis 31:29, And this is an interesting passage. It's a passage where you've got Laban and Jacob dealing with one another. If you're familiar with Jacob, he was a deceiver. He was the type of guy who liked to get without really doing justly to other people. And Laban knew that. And so Laban has felt like he's been wronged. And he tells Jacob, it is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So God had given Laban power. And Laban could have used his power to harm Jacob, who he thought had wronged him, but God warned him not to. And so his fear of God caused him to not use his power to do harm to Jacob. Also, in the same context, in chapter 31 still, verse 50, they're speaking to one another, and again, they bring up the fear of God. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, Laban again speaking to Jacob, although no one is with us, See, God is witness between you and me. See, the oppressor thinks, well, nobody's looking, nobody knows, I can lie, I can get away with it, I can cheat, I can steal, I can be all kinds of selfish and corrupt, and God's not going to do anything about it, no one else is going to do anything about it. But if you have the fear of God, and you know that God is witness, then that's going to prevent you from misusing the power that God has given you. The fear of God is a strong deterrent to the abuse of power. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 6, speaks again about the oppression that is so common, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Notice that last part. Who are those who oppress? Who are those who deceive? Those who refuse to know the Lord. The knowledge of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, that's the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning of understanding. And it's a strong deterrent to oppressors, to oppression. That is why godless systems of politics, godless systems of religion and worldview produce some of the most oppression that is seen in history. 
because there is no fear of God in an atheistic system like socialism or communism. If you have a secular worldview, then those who are in power and nobody can stop them can do whatever they want without any fear of God. We must be on our guard against atheistic systems. They are the most oppressive of all. Although they try to sell themselves as being the solution to the problem, they compound it and multiply the problem of human oppression. So the fear of God is a deterrent to the abuse of power, and God is the rescuer of the abused. That's our third point. As I just mentioned, Marxism is sold to the masses as a cure for the abuse of power. They have a man-made solution that empowers the Marxist party to be able to right the wrongs that have been done to certain classes of society. This is very alluring. It is very deceptive. It's very godless, and it's very destructive. The party is not the hope of the abused. God is the hope of the abused. The solution to abuse of power is not to give the government power. They'll just abuse it. The solution to the abuse of power is to teach people the fear of God. And as people fear God, then they will stop abusing one another by equal measure. The more the fear of God is limited in society, the more it is taken away, the more it is taught against, the more oppression you will see. Now, God does rescue the abused. God is long-suffering with abusers like you and me. Okay, Don't think of the abusers as those people. Think of them as sinners like us who misuse our tongue, who misuse the power that God has given us and do not serve others in love in a Christ-like manner. God is long-suffering and patient and forgiving and self-sacrificing, as we see in the elements on the table. But he will eventually act to bring justice. And when he brings justice, he brings it with power in a violent manner. How is the oppressor stopped? By the power and the might of God. When the time is right, When it is necessary and good, God will, as an expression of his love and his justice, judge the oppressor. The first half of the book of Exodus is all about this. Exodus chapter 3, verse 9. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Now, why did it take until the birth of Moses, after hundreds of years of wrongly being enslaved and that slavery reaching a pinnacle of corruption and abuse and the slaughter of innocent babies, why did God wait until then in order to have the cry of the people come to see the oppression and then to act on behalf of his people? We would say, that's too slow. You need to be quicker in judging the oppressors and setting the abused free. Well, God does it when he thinks is the right time, not when you think is the right time, because you are an oppressor. You are corrupt. You are wicked. God is not. So I'm going to trust his judgment on when is the right time to step in and judge rather than my judgment or your judgment. At the right time, God judges. We see it in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 9, you see God's judgment showing his power, bringing an end to the unjust slavery. This becomes a dominant theme throughout the Old Testament. Looking back to the Exodus, looking back to God's judgments upon Pharaoh, upon Egypt, upon the oppressors to show his power. As it says in Exodus chapter 15, verse 6, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, 
shatters the enemy, as he did through the plagues on Egypt and through drowning them in the sea. Now, Exodus 14.31 reveals how Israel saw the power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then God calls us to imitate him and upholding justice and righteousness and looking out for those who are less powerful, those who are being oppressed. He says in Exodus 22:21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So when we are mistreated by others, that teaches us not to do that. We didn't like it, so we shouldn't treat other people that way, which is the golden rule. The golden rule goes a long way. However you want people to treat you, that's how you treat them. God allows you to experience suffering. He allows you to experience corruption. He allows you to experience being wronged by sinners so that you can learn not to do it because you do. And you need to learn to stop. And so don't grumble against God and say, oh God, why are you allowing people to mistreat me? Why are you allowing people to harm me? Well, it's so that you can learn what you need to learn and don't complain against God. But instead, trust in God, that he is the one who is going to deliver you from oppression. God is going to deliver you from oppression in his time, when he thinks it's right. We have to suffer. And it's not unjust for God to allow us to suffer abuse. God himself suffered abuse. Jesus Christ came, and what does the scripture say concerning him? Isaiah chapter 53, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was oppressed. Oppression. He knows what it's like. He's gone through it. And he set us an example for how to live as Christians when we suffer oppression. When we are wronged, a big theme in the Psalms is this idea that God is the one who is the savior of the oppressed. Listen to Psalm 9.9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Psalm 72 verse 14. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Psalm 146 verse 7. He executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. But the book of Psalms reveals that while this is true, it's not always obvious. It doesn't always seem like God is there helping the oppressed and setting the prisoners free. And that's why you've got Psalms like Psalm 42 in verse 9 where he says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Have you ever felt that way? You know of people who feel that way? I know that God is the one who's going to save me. I know that God is my hope, but it seems like he's forgotten. It seems like he's not there for me. It seems like he doesn't care because he just lets it go on and on and on. Where's God? In the same way, Psalm 44, verse 24, asks God, Why do you hide your face Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? So what is the solution? 
Well, in the history that we live in, in this age, there will be times where God steps in and stops the oppression and judges the oppressor. However, the fullness of salvation we have to wait for. We have to wait until the end of the story, which is kind of what's spawning this study, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation reveals God's plan to deal with oppression and injustice and corruption once and for all. He has a time, he has a place, he has a way, he's told us how he's going to do it. He hasn't told us exactly when, he just says it's going to be soon. It's going to be soon. You've got to wait. That's the book of Revelation. Number four, the fourth principle that we have on the use and abuse of power, and this is more about the use of power than the abuse of power, God graciously puts moral men in positions of power sometimes. Sometimes God puts moral men in positions of power. You see this throughout the Bible. Joseph was put into a position where he could do great benefit to not only his family, but all the families of Egypt and the surrounding nations. Mordecai was put in a position of power where he would be able to exercise that power for good and as a servant of the people. Daniel was put into a position of power multiple times, as we see in our scripture reading. Towards the end of his life, he was elevated to that third in the kingdom. And so God will graciously, at times, put moral men in positions of power in order to serve the people, in order to look out for the interests of others, as we are instructed, through love, serve one another. That's the essence of a proper use of power, loving, humble service to those that we are in authority over. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8, even if I boast a little too much of our authority, what's that word authority, power, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you. If you're in a position of power, you're a parent, you're an authority over your children, you're a husband, you're an authority over your family, you're a boss, an authority over workers. You're in the government, and you're an authority over the community. If you're in a business, and you've got an authority in the marketplace and in, in the work that is being done there, God will hold you accountable for how you use that authority. If you are using that authority selfishly, if you are using that authority as an egomaniac, if you are using that authority with delusions of grandeur and not considering the needs of others, then God will judge you for the abuse of power. But God in his grace does give good leadership, like the Apostle Paul, who did not misuse his authority very much. I assume that everybody misuses their authority a little bit at some times. But by and large, he was a man who was interested in building up the church and not tearing it down. And so build up your family, build up your business, build up your community. And don't tear it down through an abusive use of authority, of power. There's nothing wrong with power. God gives power. God gave authority to the Apostle Paul. The solution to the abuse of power is not to say, well, nobody's in authority. Nobody has any power. Everybody's completely equal in power so that if somebody tries to abuse you, you can fight back with the equal power and equal authority. That eliminating power structures is not the solution. God creates power structures. They have a purpose. You can study that in Scripture as well. Can't go into all those details. The point is that whatever authority, whatever power you have, use it for building up others, and that will be an act of God's grace to the world. 
that God has put you in a position where you can be a blessing to others with the power and the authority that he has given to you. And then the next point, God in judgment puts immoral men in positions of power. See, it's God's grace that gives us moral men in positions of power. It's his judgment that puts immoral people in positions of power. We read it in Daniel 4. We read it in Daniel 6. That's pretty much the whole point of those chapters in the Bible is that God has power over Assyria. God has power over Babylon. God has power over the Medes and the Persians. And while they're not trying to serve God, God is using them to execute his judgments on the earth. Jeremiah talks about this in Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 5, where God, speaking through the prophet, says, It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth. So again, God, focus on God as the creator. God's power stems from the fact that he is the creator. And not only he made the earth, but the men and the animals that are on the earth. And what does he say? I give it to whomever it seems right to me. And what was the context for Jeremiah 27.5? Nebuchadnezzar. He was coming to destroy the city of Jerusalem. He was coming to destroy the temple. And he was going to carry away all the articles of God's house. And the Jews thought, well, that can't be right. That can't be God's will. That can't be what God wants. But Jeremiah made it clear and plain. This is my judgment on you because your city is full of oppression. In the marketplace, fraud and deceit do not depart. And so I'm bringing Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, to judge you. Even though he's not a righteous man. He doesn't know God at this point. Only much later that God humbles him and shows him that power comes from God and that God is the one who gave him the authority and the power. Very important to recognize that. God is the one who gives authority and power. You say, well, what if people get their authority and power by cheating? What if they try to steal an election? Then then is that legitimate authority and power? Did God give them authority and power if they cheated to get it? Yes. God gave them the authority and the power. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar did everything right in order to come to his power, in order to come into his throne? You think he was doing God's will in the sense of obeying God's law? throughout his life, and that's why he got to the powerful position? No. He was ruthless. Basically a terrorist. And so these murderers, these insolent, unjust men, they come to power by all kinds of means. And yet God is the one who is in control. God gives it to whomever seems right in his sight. All authority is given by God. Remember what Jesus told Pilate. You would have no authority over me unless it was given to you by my Father who is in heaven. Well, what did the Father have to do with it? It was Caesar's appointment. Caesar's an evil man. And why should we be subject to Pilate? When, uh, Caesar has no rights here. He should, really shouldn't be ruling over us. You see how people rebel against authority and they think, well, if it hasn't been gotten legitimately, then we don't have to obey the authority. But, but God puts wicked men in positions of power in order to judge the earth. The wicked men who are in positions of power in our commerce and in our government, they're there because of God's judgment upon our nation. That's very clear throughout the Bible. This is not difficult theology. We should not have a hard time with this. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6. There are difficult things in the Bible. This is not one of them. This is plain. It's, it's right there for anyone who wants to read it. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6 says... O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule, not you will rule, or you should rule, or you could rule if only Christians did a better job. No, you rule 
over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that no one is able to withstand you. God's sovereignty over the course of human affairs is a plain doctrine in Scripture. I encourage you to do the study if these verses are not convincing. Just study power and authority and uh, look up those words and and you'll come away with the, the clear conclusion. So, point number six. We've talked about how we can expect extensive abuse of power among sinful people. The fear of God is the best deterrent to the abuse of power. We should be encouraging the fear of God. That's, that's our best deterrent in this age. God is the rescuer of the abused. God graciously puts moral men in positions of power, but at other times, God in judgment puts immoral men in positions of power. You can have a moral man followed right after by an immoral man, and they're both accomplishing God's purposes in grace and judgment. And then sixth, our last point for this morning, God will soon put all power in the hands of his Christ. Okay? And this is where the good news is. Because extensive abuse of power is not very good news. The fear of God is good. God rescuing the abuse, that's good. And God graciously putting moral men, that's good. But this judgment, that's not very, very fun for us. But soon, God will put all power in the hands of his Christ, and that's the book of Revelation. That's what we're studying here. Turn to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Revelation 1, 7 is the theme verse for the book. And there we are told, Behold, see it with the eyes of faith. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And so when we come to Revelation chapter 5, and the lamb that has been slain comes to receive the book from the right hand of him who sits upon the throne, and all of heaven sings the song of worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, and to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and glory and honor and might forever and ever. That power that God is going to take and begin to reign with is described in Revelation 11. Come with me also to Revelation eleven seventeen. As the seventh trumpet sounds, this is an unfolding of the judgments, an unfolding of God taking away the power from those in the world and giving it to his Christ. The 24 elders, they fall down on their faces and worship God, and they say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for, why are we giving him praise? You have taken your great power, and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, the fear of God, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. God is going to take his great power, and he's going to begin to reign. That's what the book of Revelation tells us, that soon God is going to put all power in the hands of his Christ In one sense, Christ is already ruling and reigning over all, and yet he's allowing evil people to be in charge of the nations. He's allowing Satan to deceive and to have his time, to have his hour of darkness, but soon Christ is going to bring that to an end. He's going to take away the authority that he's given to Satan. He's going to take away the authority that he's given to the wicked men in the nations. He's going to judge them. He's going to cast them into the lake of fire, and he's going to sit on the throne, and his saints are going to be given the kingdom forever and ever. That is the truth of God. 
Not just a theology, not just a religion, not just a hope so or an idea that people came up with to comfort themselves in their affliction. That is the revelation of God, the creator, the plan laid out for all mankind to be able to see and understand and believe. And God has demonstrated, he's proven that this word is true. And so what do we do in the meantime? If we recognize we live in a world where a lot of oppression where the fear of God seems to be on the decline, where we put our hope in God, but how long do I have to suffer? How long do I have to to be in this place where sinners sin against me? Government life, into the business world, into our churches and the leadership of religions and, and into even our homes. How can you hold on and keep putting your hope and your trust in God? Well, it's by reading and believing what's in the book of Revelation. Remember Revelation 1-7. This is a book about a transfer of power. What do we do? What's the bottom line? Remember what Paul said. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil. When oppression seems to be all around, corruption and practices, people misusing their tongues, what do you do? You obey God. You fear God. You become more Christ-like. You suffer the way that Christ suffered, putting your hope in the resurrection, putting your hope in the kingdom. And those are the ones who are the overcomers. Those are the ones who are the victors. Those are the ones that Jesus Christ will hand the authority and the power over to and say, now it's your time. Now it's your hour because you believed. Let's have a word of prayer before we have our communion service. Father, we have not been given great power in this world, and that's by your design. We recognize that you choose those who are powerless in this world to be able to have the invisible spiritual power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of forgiveness, the power of love, the power of hope, the power of joy. Lord, these spiritual invisible powers are at work within us and they are a testimony to the world that you raised Jesus Christ from the dead and that he is coming back. Because we love one another, all the world can know that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. Lord, we pray that you would increase our hope, increase our joy, increase our endurance and perseverance in an evil time and in an evil age. Help us to recognize what it is that you called us to do. And just be faithful in obeying your commands and doing the right things, the good works that you lay out in front of us in our homes, in our businesses, in our church, and even in government if we have positions there. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.